Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. As I said before, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, We are going through a series on the book of Hebrews. This... uh, this has been hard. This is, I knew it would be hard, but this is, this is deep stuff. Like this is, we're going to get into it a little bit. And uh, if it kind of goes over your head, I'm doing the best I can here. But it's important stuff. Um, we publish, we post our sermons online, and we'd love to talk with you more about these things. Uh, but this is a letter that was written primarily to Christians who were Jewish Christians, for one, so it speaks a lot of their their language, their theology, the things that they'd be familiar with. Two, it's dealing with people who are facing a lot of social pressure and persecution, and so they're being challenged, and a lot of them um, perhaps are leaving their faith. Some of them are um, watering down the identity of who Jesus is. And so this letter opens with this grand overture, four verses long, And it makes some incredible statements about Jesus' identity, and much of the rest of the book is going to be exploring those claims. First, it says that God has spoken to us through a son. Now, in English, it says that it's the son or his son, but in Greek, it actually just says a son, and there's a reason for that. It's because the author wants to contrast this son with other sons. Angels in the Old Testament uh, are called sons of God. The heavenly hosts, the divine council, are called God's sons. Son of um, can mean, you know, somebody's son, but uh, a son of something can also denote a kind of being. Son of man refers to a son of humanity, a human one. Um, Son of God can simply mean um, a divine being created directly by God. So the claim is that God has spoken through a son And this son is different from all other sons. How? First, we talked about inheritance last week. God has established this son as the heir of all things. Now, what does that mean? Unlike the spiritual angelic sons, this one is found worthy and eligible to claim the status of co-ownership, co-possession, co-ruler with God over all things. That means... Uh, that the ability to unite our world under the lordship of Jesus has been given and awarded to Jesus. That was what Ephesians 1 says. There are a lot of divisive powers in our world. I think we can all agree with that, right? I mean, you just get on Facebook for a little bit. Watch the news. Yeah, there's a lot of division out there. And there's a biblical worldview that suggests that there are spiritual rulers and authorities behind those divisive powers, angelic beings. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes that it has been God's plan for the fullness of time, when the times would reach their fulfillment, to bring down those walls, to bring together all things in heaven and on earth, under Jesus Christ and under his lordship to bring everything together in him. That's the plan. And this son has inherited, has been awarded the inheritance of the nations to be able to do that. 
This son has also inherited the family name, the name of God, the name that is above all other names, all other heavenly sons of God, and also people for that matter. All things in heaven and on earth are under his authority and will worship him. Second, this son is eternal. Through him, he also created the universe, the passage says. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And those are really rare words in the Greek. They're tied to uh, the Old Testament ideas of the wisdom of God and the name of the Lord being identified sometimes as individual persons and distinct from God and also sometimes as God himself. We won't get too into that, but that's from Proverbs 8 and Exodus. And it's a way of saying the Son is distinct from the Father, and yet in him we find the intrinsic reality of the Father. Now I want to pause here, and I want to point a few things out. First of all, people back then, they didn't say these kinds of things. They didn't make these kinds of claims about other people very often. Okay, this is kind of rare. It's easy to breeze right through Hebrews and think, you know, they're just making some lofty claims about Jesus, and that's kind of normal. We've, we've heard that all our lives if we've gone to church and so on. But it's not normal. For one thing, these are Jewish people who have been raised to recite every day you shall worship no other gods besides Yahweh. Two, we have writings from early critics of Christianity dating from the first century. And they're, they're looking at the claims that Christians are making, and they're saying, these people are completely nuts and flat-out evil in some cases for believing the things they believe. We're not talking about cavemen. Okay? We're not talking about gullible people who would just believe anything you want to say about God. These are the days of Greco-Roman philosophy. These people are incredibly sophisticated and smart. Is it true that they occasionally spoke of Caesar in those terms? Sometimes they did, but not to this extent and not for very long. This was extreme, even for these times, which means that these people were either completely off their rocker or they had experienced something that led them to become utterly convinced that through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God had shown up and he'd done something in the world. And as a result of that, the world is now a different place than it was prior. And they were so convinced of that that they were willing to die for it, to give their lives proclaiming this. That's significant because today... We face a lot of the same things. You ask kind of a general gamut of people who Jesus is, you get a lot of different answers. You know, Jesus is a good person. Jesus is a good moral example. You know, we can, you know, maybe prop him up here as a good teacher and so on. Maybe not. Maybe we just, you know, some people don't believe he was even a historical figure, which is actually that's just pretty ludicrous, even if you don't believe the claims about him. But there's a lot of opinions on there, out there about who Jesus is. But if the claims here that are being said are true, there's no neutral ground. We have to make a decision. You can't just tack him up there along with Krishna and Buddha and whoever else, or just say he's a spiritual accessory that's going to help me actualize myself in my life or anything like that. No, if this is who he really is, the only adequate response is to fall on our knees and worship him. 
As if the author had not made this point already, he turns to the Old Testament to compare this son to the other heavenly beings. Christ is greater than angels, he says. Now, before we get into the passage, why angels and who cares? Because today, I don't feel like we spend a lot of time concerning ourselves over the temptation to worship angels or anything like that. But first of all, let me give a little historical backdrop. Remember, there's a lot more to this. If you were with us in our God Outside the Box series, you'll remember some things. Uh, for one, in Deuteronomy 4 and other passages, um, spiritual beings are identified with the celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars. And they're, I don't know if they believe they literally were the stars or if they're like metaphorically connected. I'm not really sure all of that. But today, there's a lot of that going on still. And in this time, uh, they found in archaeology, my friend Seth pointed me to a source that talked about how they've dug up these amulets or charms. And on those charms are the names of angels written down. And they had a whole hierarchy of understanding these angels and, and how you could appeal to these angels and kind of curry favor with God, so to speak. So they've actually found these amulets, and they'll have the names of these angels, and they'll actually have the name of Jesus written right next to them, right alongside them. But the reality is today, if you happen to check your horoscope before coming to church on Sunday, you just did the same thing. You got Jesus on your amulet right next to a whole bunch of other names, because that's what they're identified as in a lot of cases. My mom just uh, recently, last week in fact, um, stayed for a time with a friend who is part of a Unitarian church, I think. It's kind of, they're into a whole bunch of things. Um, but she had this experience where they were around the dinner table and her friend said, oh, you can't sit in that seat. And my mom was like, well, why? And, and she said, well, this is my seat over here and, and that's the family section. Now this, this lady is single. She doesn't have a family. She's been single for years and years. And, and lo and behold, she's got like pictures of families over on this side. And these are just random people. She doesn't know them. They're just, I don't know. She might know them. But they're just, they're just families. And, but they represent something. It's the spirit families. It's like these spirits that she's kind of appealing to and all this stuff. So this is alive and well today. And my wife has a, had a friend that she went to school with, and they're friends on Facebook. They don't really keep in touch too much, but, uh, excuse me there. Um, recently, she posted kind of a, a coming out moment where she revealed that she, she, I think, left Christianity and was now an astrologer. And so she had all her tarot cards, and she's, after, man, after going through the God Outside the Box series and... Um, learning more about how this is pictured in the biblical worldview, it was just creepy because it was like, oh my word, this is, this is alive and well. This realm is, is going on. They're still doing the same things they were doing back in Genesis 6 because the things she's saying, she, and she's, you know, she's, I don't know, she's got her tarot cards out and she's doing all kinds of stuff, but she's, she'll randomly post things like, Virgil's in a good mood right now, so watch, for your, watch your kids for mood swings in the next few days. And, you know, things like that that are, yeah, it's just happening. You go downtown to a coffee shop. I'm sitting there waiting for, you know, prepping for a sermon. People start talking about how they're actualizing themselves, and they're kind of appealing to these spirit things. And 
Anyway, all of it, it's very real today. It's going on. But even for those who are like not into that stuff, what would cause us to be drawn to that? Like, why would we be drawn to this? And we have this picture of this benevolent God of some kind who, you know, is there in all, you know, some glory to give you whatever you want if you just kind of appeal to it in some way or another. Um, you don't have to answer to an all-powerful God of the Bible. And placing our reliance upon something other than Jesus maybe is at the core of this, whether it's sometimes just maybe our money or relationships or our government. We get drawn into peer groups. We get drawn into groupings, and there's a biblical worldview that says the things that divide people have a spiritual undercurrent behind them. That's a tricky road to go down because at some level we have to trust in our government, don't we? We have to trust. We have to use money to you know, make the world work and so on. And so that's a difficult one to assess personally. Where have I gone after something that's made me promises and put my faith in that something other than in Christ? Let me go ahead and read our passage, Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And this is quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament passages in a row. So, and, and they're all very deep. It's, it's funny. I actually purchased a commentary to study this stuff in a, a commentary. This is like a scholar writing for preachers so he can help them figure out what to say. All he could say about this was, um, you know, it was a, a literary mechanism back in the day to basically just overwhelm someone with scriptural proof text so that they'd, they wouldn't, you know, think about it too hard or something like that. And that's, that's not going on here. That's, that's like, I paid money for this. Um, this is really, really deep, and unfortunately, we won't, we'll hardly scratch the surface of it. But let me go ahead and read these quotes. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All right, let's pause and just pray with me real quick here. Father, uh, we just acknowledge that this is your word, and I just pray that the right words would come through and that we would um, be able to understand and delve a little more deeply into who you are and what this means for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
All right, I think the main point that's being made here is to display that Jesus is a king over and above all other kings. And we'll kind of flesh that out a bit. But right away, when we read these quotations, there's a little bit of a problem if you're paying attention. We just got finished saying that this son is eternal, but if Jesus was begotten by the Father, doesn't that mean that he's a created being? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Doesn't the very nature of a father having a son mean that, well, the father had a son, right? And I want to speak to this because there are people like Jehovah's Witnesses and others, and and they'll use passages like this one to claim that Jesus was not one with God, but was created along with the other angels. And he might be an extra special one, but he isn't... God. He doesn't share that identity with God. He's just an angel. So we need to figure out what is meant by begotten son or firstborn. Because frankly, we're modern people and we see things through our lenses and we interpret them that way. But we need to probably change our lenses because there's meaning to terminology that we might not be grasping. Our first clue is that there are other cases when, in fact, God did say to angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If, in fact, we're talking about um, God being a creator, the originator of those spiritual beings. In the Old Testament, there's a heavenly host. They're called the sons of God. Psalm 82, God is condemning them, but he says, You are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High, yet like men you will die and fall like any prince. That's Psalm 82. And so, surely it must mean something else, otherwise there's this major contradiction going on here. Again, in verse 6, Jesus is identified with the firstborn, but does that mean that Jesus had a beginning? Is he the first one that was born? Is that what that means? In most contexts, that's what that word means. Might mean, but consider Exodus 4 22, where uh, God is telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, um, what does he say? He says, is, he says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So, how can Jesus be the firstborn and Israel be the firstborn? And how can Israel be the firstborn? If they're a nation of people, how are they the firstborn? How did they come first from God? Didn't Israel derive from Jacob, whose name became Israel, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, and so on. No, the, the first human was, was apparently Adam, right? At least if that's how we read it. So the term firstborn does not always refer to the first thing that was created. Rather, we need to get our minds uh, around the idea that this term refers to a specific status of a person. It was a Jewish way of describing the particular inherited status that Jesus had attained over all creation. We'll give one more example from Colossians. Chapter 115 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the ESV will say the firstborn of all creation, but I think the NIV gets it right here because in the Greek, there is no preposition. It's just... He is the firstborn creation, all creation. So again, people will point to this passage and they'll say, well, see, Jesus was special, but he wasn't like, you know, one with God. He was 
God's firstborn offspring. But as Michael Heiser points out, they usually won't mention the next verse, which says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we can try to come up with explanations. Maybe all things here uh, were created after God created Jesus. Well, you got to hold on a second there, because the author is being emphatic here. Just as John 1 says, there's nothing in the world that has been made that wasn't made through him. You can't have a creator of all things who... Uh, was himself created because he wouldn't be the creator of all things, right? Can you be the source of all creation and be creation? No. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, it's all-encompassing. Now, I don't claim to fully understand the nature of Jesus' pre-incarnate relationship with God or how that works. I think there's a lot of mystery there And I'm hesitant to go and make bold statements sometimes. Like, uh, is Jesus God? Yeah, I think so. Is God Jesus? I don't think you should put it that way. I just, there's a relationship. There's something going on there. And I don't fully, you know, I think there's a level of mystery. And if you kill that mystery, you kind of land on something that puts us on a pedestal that takes away a sense of, awe and reverence. I think that we're dealing with ways in which God has manifested himself and revealed himself to us and acted in the world. And I believe that in Jesus, uh, the Jewish people believed that God was arriving personally among his people once more. And that's, um, I think we can say that perfectly clearly. But um, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot here that's just kind of, there's a lot of mystery there. But getting back to our main point, what's the author doing here? He's making the point that Jesus is superior to other angelic beings. He's quoting a bunch of Old Testament passages to make his arguments. To which of the angels did God ever say? And it's meant to be rhetorical. The answer is no one. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, if in fact God did beget other sons, and if in fact Jesus is eternal and didn't have a beginning, what can the author mean by these statements? Clearly, he must be communicating that, through, that though Jesus was eternal, in some sense, uh, and was always a son, something has happened that has altered his status in relationship with God and with the world, with God's creation. So what happened? When was Jesus begotten? And last week we pointed to his baptism. And I would kind of maybe retract that a little bit, actually. Because he kind of quotes Psalm 2. When Jesus was baptized, God says, You are my beloved son. But he doesn't say, Today I have begotten you. But this psalm, Psalm 2, is quoted in other places in the New Testament. It's quoted, for instance, in Acts 13, when Paul is explaining his ministry to the church in Jerusalem. And when he does that, in verse 33, he says, This has all been fulfilled to us 
their children by raising Jesus, resurrection from the dead. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he points to the resurrection as a moment of begetting the son. Okay. The second instance is later in Hebrews, in chapter 5, where it says that Jesus ascended and was appointed high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he quotes Psalm 2 there as well. Michael Heiser paraphrases it this way. It's like the father is saying, you have now taken the rule of all things with me. You, you now have taken rule, you're co-possessor, you've gone through the incarnation, you offered yourself, you rose from the dead, now come back home and sit here at my right hand. You are the faithful and only son who is eligible to co-possess and co-share all things with me and to have my name. You have now taken rule of all things with me, your father. Jesus was already an eternal son, but he claimed and received the status of a begotten firstborn when he laid aside his inheritance, became human, embraced our weakness, your weakness, my weakness, my sin, your sin, made purification for sins through the cross and the resurrection, and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having made himself Inferior, he then became superior to all other heavenly beings, all angels. And then he quotes Psalm 2. So let's take a look at Psalm 2 real quick. Psalm 2 starts by saying, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Now, I want you to notice there's a hierarchy here. There's peoples, there's nations, there's kings, and there's rulers. And we might say, yeah, but aren't rulers kings? Well, remember, in a biblical worldview, there are spiritual rulers behind earthly kings that are manipulating and holding power as well, and so on. So he's got the whole gamut here, from people to nations to kings to Rulers in the heavenly realms. I believe that's what it's talking about. And he goes on. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So there's a little autonomy here, rebellion going on. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." Jesus is begotten when he is established as God's king, through whom he will win all nations back to himself. He's the king above all kings. And that's what the author is trying to announce. He's the one who will dash the nations and their divisive rule to pieces and inherit the ends of the earth as his possession. 
And in Revelation 2, once again, John quotes Psalm 2 again to say that Jesus will give us, if you're in Christ, the same authority over the nations that the Father has given to him. I had intended to spend a lot of time breaking down the rest of these Old Testament quotations, but I'm going to have to settle for blasting through a lot of them. Uh, And if you have questions about the rest, come and talk to me after the service. We'd love to interact on this. But the author quotes next, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I'll be a God to him, I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me, to show that Jesus is the eternal king that fulfills the promise God made to David about his son, about his lineage, who would have an eternal throne. So that's Jesus, he says. He next quotes Deuteronomy 32 to show that angels, the sons of God, will worship him. There's a lot more to say about this one, so ask me later if you're curious. But here's an interesting one. He quotes Psalm 104 and says, in speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. What in the world does that mean? And it's actually pretty hard to figure out what he's trying to say here. But at the very baseline, we can know that he's trying to point out that the angels are meant to be servants and that their time is actually short. And he's going to reveal that by contrasting the next psalm. Like a wind or a flame that comes and then dies out, Uh, And there's a little more behind this, I think, because uh, there's a hyperlink. There's a cross-reference to Genesis 3 with those Hebrew words, whirling wind and flame and so on. And I think if there's a connection here with Genesis 3, and this is, I know we're going deep here, but, but think with me a little bit. God designed mankind, and he put him in his garden and said to serve and guard this garden. And then we said, let's cast off our cords. And we rebelled, and so we were ejected from this space where heaven and earth overlap. And we were transplanted by angelic beings and a flaming sword who were told to guard the garden, that space, from the human beings who initially had been told to guard it. So there's a sense, in which, a sense in which spiritual beings have taken the role we were meant to have. Deuteronomy 32, we quoted it last week, says that at the scattering of the nations, God allotted to all the peoples of the earth according to their borders and their languages. Uh, he allotted them, distributed them according to the number of the sons of God, according to spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. Psalm 82, he condemns those sons to death for their unjust rule of the nations. And the hope is, will God re-inherit the nations? So he goes on. He says there, he, wind and fire, all that stuff. Uh, he, he goes on from there, and I want to quote uh, Psalm 102. He says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The heavens will perish, but the Lord will remain. What does that mean? Does that mean the skies are literally going to be rolled up like a scroll, like a garment? Well, one clue 
It says they will wear out like a garment, like a robe they will be chained. Now, if you've been here a while, we've talked about robes and garments. They almost always represent a person's inheritance, their legacy. These beings have been, heavenly beings have been given a legacy, an inheritance of nations that they're trying to hold on to. And what the psalm is saying is that robe, that inheritance is decaying. It's wearing out under the true sun and will be changed. And the reason I draw that conclusion is because verses like Isaiah 34, verse 4 Um, I'm going to quote the Lexham English Bible. It's a little more rare translation, but I think it gets it better. It says kind of the same thing, but a little more clearly. He says, And all the hosts of heaven, who's that? That's the sons of God, angelic beings. All the hosts of heaven shall rot. And the skies shall roll up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall wither, like the withering of a leaf from a vine, or like the withering of a fig tree. So, When he talks about the heavens passing away, are the skies going to disappear? I don't know, maybe, but we're talking about those who inhabit that realm. There's something that's going to happen. There's a change that's going to occur. Psalm 102 concludes, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established forever. There's that word, begotten, established made firstborn, maybe not firstborn like Jesus, but sharing that inheritance. And in summary, the author in Hebrews 1.14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And this, this is a summarizing argument. How is the son greater than angels, spiritual beings that human beings are tempted to worship or at least seek some kind of mediation from, spiritual beings, some of whom are rebellious and deceptive and hold dominion over humans, demanding to be served by them. Others are in obedience to God and serving people. The son is greater because by his death and resurrection, he has dismantled their power over the nations. And we... You and I, who are a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8 says, will receive the inheritance of the Son's salvation, and those angels will serve you. They'll serve me. They'll serve those who are in Christ. That's why some of them don't like us very much. They don't want to give up that position. They transplanted our role. They don't want to give it back. Now, as we close... I realize this is way up here in the stratosphere. We might walk out of here and say, well, Mike, thanks. That was a big theology lesson. Um, How is that in any way relevant to my life? Maybe you aren't tempted to serve angels. Maybe you are, but you have no idea. It just is hidden in some way. But how are we subdued by power structures, social groups, political parties, the media, etc. How do we get sucked into divisive narratives and become pawns, subservient to them in some way? Oh, we'd never admit that to ourselves, but what does our behavior say when we get all fired up? Are there perhaps 
spiritual realities behind those things? And what is at the heart of someone who would turn away from Christ and seek out something else? Like my wife's old friend on Facebook, who literally turned to worship of angels, astrology, and so on. Maybe at the heart is something that is tempting for all of us. Right out of Psalm 2. I want to burst those bonds apart and cast off those cords. I want to be autonomous. I want to be self-made. I want to be independent, make a name for myself. A desire to not be ruled by anyone, maybe. And look at this passage. Angels are spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. But who is the son? You know, I want to say to that gal on Facebook, what has Virgil or Aries or Taurus or Gemini ever done for you? What have they given? When did they sacrifice themselves for you? When did they lay down their dominion, their rights, their status to give you that status? You see, Jesus, who was the eternal son, set aside his heavenly status, became lower than the angels, identified with you and I in our weaknesses, in our sins, in our brokenness. He walked alongside of us. He understands. He can empathize with your struggles, with your weaknesses. He didn't sit up there in his lofty place and say, come to me and serve me and I'll give you what you want. No, he came down to you to be with you, to have his presence with you. No one else has died for you in the way Jesus has. So that we could be exalted with him. No one. Jesus became what the lesser spiritual beings were intended to be and what human rulers were intended to be for you. The rest of it is pretty broken and selfish. And he didn't have to do that, but he did. Messages like this can be heavy. They can be dense. They require a lot from us. But at the very least, we should be led to ask ourselves, do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And if so, how will I respond to him? Because if this is true, then we should all fall down on our faces and worship him. There's no more adequate response than that. We're going to take communion in a moment. Back in verse 3 and 4, it said, After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Therefore, he has become superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It's because Jesus became less. It's because he gave himself on a cross. It's because he made purification for sins that he was begotten. God always had authority over the nations, but the means to re-inherit them became possible through Jesus. Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate by 
taking a, a symbolic meal together that emblemizes the body and blood of Jesus given for us for the purification of sins to open a way for us to come to the Father and to be rescued because he did for us what no other being in heaven or on earth could ever do or accomplish. So I'm going to pray, and then the ushers are going to come down and pass out some cups with a bit of bread and a cup that represents his body and blood given for us. And if you have never done this before, you don't know what this is about, that's okay. Just let this pass you by. This is technically for those who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, But as we do this, as they pass these things out, I want you to meditate on some things. Think about those power structures that hold sway over us. Ask ourselves, what is it intrinsic in me? Maybe you're not drawn to worship angels. I don't know. But what is it that leads me to go looking for a shortcut or to a a quick fix to get all my answers and my needs met? What, What group or what party or what power system is making promises to me that I will buy into and then start throwing stones at the other group, the other party, the other system, playing right into their hands, giving them the inheritance they want. Jesus says, God says, that Jesus is greater than them because what you're becoming subservient to is actually meant to be subservient to you. In him, those walls come down. So let him do that work in your own heart and bring those walls down as we go to his table this morning. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We are now back on our standard fall schedule with two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.